You are listening to a Core Awareness Seminar by Liz Cook. Her website is www.coreawareness.com. That's C-O-R-E awareness.com. Please note that Core Awareness is a trademark signature of Liz Cook, her workshops, seminars, books, and CDs. The information presented in the seminar is in no way intended as a substitute for receiving professional medical care. The design and purpose of the seminar is to provide information and to simply educate. The author and publisher shall have neither liability nor responsibility to any person or entity with respect to any loss, damage, or injury caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly by the information, suggestions, explorations, or exercises contained within the seminar or written in response to the seminar. The author is not a medical authority, and she is not qualified to diagnose or prescribe any therapy. The information is simply her personal opinion. Please seek medical care for whatever condition you may have. Hi, I want to welcome everybody who has joined me for the uh, SOAS Teleseminar. I'm Liz Cook. My website is coreawareness.com. I'm the author of the SOAS book, Core Awareness, Enhancing Yoga, Pilates, Exercise, and Dance, Unraveling Scoliosis, and the SOAS and Back Pain. I am welcoming... Michael Shia today. We're going to be talking about a variety of subjects, one of them being um, embryology. So I want to introduce Michael before we begin. Dr. Michael Shia has a PhD. He's one of the uh, preeminent educators and authors in the field of somatic psychology, myofascial release, and cranial sacral therapy. He presents seminars throughout the United States, Canada, and Europe. He received his master's degree in Buddhist psychology at Naropa University and a doctorate in somatic psychology at the Union Institute. Michael was certified in 1986 as one of the first full instructors of craniosacral therapy by the Upledger Institute and was an advanced rolfer. He is currently adjunct faculty and teaches human embryology. And he may correct me in what's the most current event he's doing, but he teaches embryology in the pre and perinatal psychology doctoral program at Santa Barbara Graduate Institute. That's David Chamberlain's work in California. And I welcome you, Michael. Thank you so much for taking your very busy schedule and making time for this conversation. Well, thank you, Liz. It's a pleasure to be on board with this call. I always love talking about the embryo. Right. So um, I want to start with, with, before we go there, because you do what's called uh, biodynamic craniosacral therapy. I actually don't know if you are the creator of that or someone else, but I would like you to define the difference between biodynamic craniosacral therapy and other forms of craniosacral craniosacral therapy, because most people have at least heard of that term. Ah, okay. Um, well, I don't, uh, I'm not the, the founder or the starter by any means of, of 
biodynamic craniosacral therapy, the actual founder and lineage holder of the craniosacral concept came from William Sutherland, who was an osteopathic physician. And late in his life, um, in the late 1940s, he had an, a direct experience of a type of a, a movement or an experience of something happening in the patient's body that was actually doing the work. And he had, up until that time, developed a very mechanistic model where it was all about the therapist applying forces and lifting and pushing and pulling on the tissue of the cranium and the body in general to create uh, a healing effect. And so at the end of his life, he just changed the, um, the method completely to a very light touch uh, skill and said respect and reverence was a very intimate part of the, the process. And gradually it took about 20 years for the community to give it a name, and the name became Biodynamic. And the word Biodynamic is specifically associated with uh, human embryology and the study of embryology um, from a movement point of view. There is a branch of embryology that just studies how an embryo grows and develops. And basically, early developmental biologists were looking at a human embryo, and they were seeing the whole, and that became associated with the term biodynamics. So it's looking at the whole body or the whole embryo and how that movement of the whole um, maintains itself over time, even through adulthood. So that's the biodynamic method of craniosacral therapy brings that into um, the technique that we use. I don't, I'm not sure if it's a technique, but it's a perceptual process in which we consider ourselves and the client as whole, that it's not the end point of treatment, it's the beginning point. So we do a lot of practices and perceptual um, work on perceptual skills to feel our wholeness and to feel the client's wholeness at the beginning of a session. And that's the biodynamic method. In a nutshell, in a nutshell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know. I understand that concept. Um, In a nutshell, that's great. So um, so my work is with the core tissue that we call psoas. And um, I've been working with this for about 37 years, probably closer to 40 now. But um, uh, And I had to find a a motif or a paradigm that would help people understand the psoas. And I began biomechanically because that's all I knew just looking at anatomy books. But as I began to understand the psoas and experience the psoas in myself and other people as a expression of wholeness, I found that the embryological model was a model that helped people understand wholeness and understand um, the essence, I would say, of what the psoas is messaging. So I call the psoas the messenger of the midline. And I feel its main conversation is around coherency and integrity. And you can define that on lots of different levels. But that's kind of the basic, in the nutshell, definition of how I'm understanding psoas. So I've moved very far away from the biomechanical 
conversation because it's too limiting if you really want to understand psoas. So I wanted to invite you here to help me and those listening to have some new understanding of what I would call the embryological story or how we become who we are. And so I'm going to give you a full range to say whatever you want um, <laughs> in, in that story. But tell us a story about who we are embryologically and why that's so relevant to our sense of health and well-being. Well, I mean, in a broader sense, I think that as a culture, um, we've lost our sense of origin. The, the origin myths of the Western culture, you know, are gradually diminishing. I mean, we're talking about perhaps like the book of Genesis and, and people no longer taking that literally. And we're moving into more of a scientific paradigm of looking at origin. One of the things that was most amazing about the 9-11 um, incident in New York City some years ago was that the month before that, um, human embryos started to be on the front page of many papers because there was a uh, discussion about uh, whether stem cells could be, uh, and the use of stem cells uh, in research could be legal in the United States. And I remember in the August before 9-11 that there was a picture of a, a real human embryo right there in the cover of, of USA Today. And ever since then, we see a continual uh, stream of information, less so in the last two years, but particularly in the past decade, of front page articles about the human embryo. And for me, that's the consciousness shift towards looking at our origin, and, and, and it's us. And why is that necessary? And that's because a lot of the, the literature that I read for my doctoral work and have experienced um, apprenticing out on the Navajo Reservation, in cross-cultural healing ritual, it was very important in the ritual that the patient be taken back to their moment of origin. So many healing rituals on this planet are designed to help the client experience their embryo in the sense of their original wholeness before they became fragmented with their diseases and, and disorders. And the biodynamic work I teach is very much about that as well, the restoration of one's wholeness by touching the embryo in the adult, not necessarily regressing to that time, but touching the movement that was there originally that's still present uh, in the adult. So it's a very important um, healing dynamic to be able to sense the origin of the embryo. One of the things that emerges for me um, in working with the psoas, um, I basically liken it to a caterpillar um, and the midline of the human organism is like a caterpillar. And if you poke it, no matter where in the world that caterpillar lives, no matter what color it is, no matter what it's emotional um, ex, uh, environment in terms of, you know, its color, its education, its financial background, whatever's going on with that caterpillar, you poke it and it will curl. And so I've always encouraged people who work to, uh, to not uh, directly engage the psoas, but to see it as the messenger of the midline, to understand that if you understand its message, 
whether it's trauma in the system or it's disrupted sacroiliac joints, um, that the psoas is a survival response, but it's also part of our thriving and our full body orgasm and the capacity to really blossom and that you can't poke a rose any more than you can poke a psoas and get it to fully blossom. And so in this, in this kind of reframing, psoas is not the problem, but the messenger. The midline seems to be a real essential aspect of that. And I don't know if you still, you know, if you still think of midline like I'm thinking of midline, but that idea of a primitive streak and that the whole organism evolved out of that. I'd like you to kind of go and tell me whatever you want to about the beginning of life for us as human beings. Well, Um, The midline itself is a very interesting discussion in embryology. Uh, Some years ago, uh, the term itself was removed um, from the uh, terminology describing human embryos and basically meaning that there's no permanent structural midline around which growth and development occurs. It's probably better to say that there's transient midlines. So, for instance... And those transient midlines, meaning that they come and they go. And that's true for embryos. They, you know, will build a structure one day that's necessary for a certain element um, of growth and then disintegrate it the next day because it's outgrown it. And so the primitive streak is, is a really good example. The primitive streak um, comes and then, and then it goes, and what it leaves behind um, is a canal around which fluid moves, that's a wonderful thing. So we get a lot of potential fluid movements, uh, rippling and currents as a result of that primitive streak. Uh, we then, in the, in the later embryology, see that the primitive streak and its remnants is completely responsible for every single structure in the human pelvis, from the bones to the organs to everything, and indirectly responsible Um, also for the spine, but it's directly responsible for the growth of one other important system, the heart and the vascular system. The cells on the edge of that primitive streak migrate off laterally from that midline, and they go right into that canal I was talking about, and they become the heart. So it's a it's a beautiful image, and it's a beautiful notion that this midline, this transient midline of the primitive streak can give so much uh, from the heart uh, all the way down to the to the pelvic floor, and what's in between would be the psoas. Yeah. So it's it's a beautiful beautiful notion. Before we move on to the heart, tell us whatever you know about psoas tissue. Kel, so um, Liz, what's the question again? What the relationship of psoas tissue to the heart? Well, to the heart, to the kidneys, like how you understand this messenger or this, and we, we were just talking before we began the idea that people who are studying connective tissue really see the psoas, the central nervous system, the kidneys kind of within this deeper core, within the very internal core of our being. Well, I, I can answer that only partially. Um, as I, you and I were talking before this um, 
call began, and I, I looked up in some of my embryology books, and I can't find a, a reference to psoas hardly anywhere. And that's one of the really strange things about human embryology. There's so little that we know, but I could tell what little of the story I know. One of the amazing organ systems of the body are the kidneys. Before you get a definitive kidney where it's located in low back right now on either side, there are several precursor um, kidney systems that, as I had said earlier, they disintegrate. One of the kidney systems is a bilateral structure that appears um, about three and a half weeks post-fertilization, and as it, it grows bilaterally and goes all the way up to the future neck. So if you could imagine a set of kidneys bilaterally that go all the way from the neck down to the pelvic floor, and I say back into this because it's, it's the psoas then that in the adult kidney that, that uses uh, the psoas to grow on. So the adult kidneys bilaterally then move up and down the psoas. And I think there's a very intimate connection with the original kidneys um, lateral of that midline and um, the development of the psoas. In term, especially in terms of its fluid nature because of the way that kidneys handle fluid, then one would anticipate that that total body orgasm that you mentioned would also be a rippling wave-like effect that could be initiated and moved through the psoas in terms yeah. of its water element. A lot like Emily Conrad teaches in Continuum, that rippling, spontaneous movement effect, and I believe a lot of that probably comes from the psoas. Yeah, I do too. Tell us uh, also about the jaw and the pelvis and what connection the jaw, the two ends of the midline or, or the, this idea of the primitive streak or this center space. Um, what can we learn about the relationship? It's because we know they reflect each other. Well, um, again, in my own study of, of cranial sacral therapy, the, the very traditional understanding um, of the jaw and the pelvis is that they do mimic each other at an osseous level, so that we have at one level the innominate bones or the hip bones mimicking the temporal bones, the, the, the more posterior part of the, of the jaw. The, the deeper understanding of that, though, um, deeper to the osseous system, would be the um, gut level. The gut, um, the upper end of the gut being the face, the face is in embryology called the hard covering of the upper end of the GI tube, and then the lower end of the GI tube um, at the level of the anus. Those structures um, and the cells that form them are considered to be some of the very first cells that form in the human body. The cells that become the gut form within five to six days post-fertilization, well before, well, well before, several days before the cells that are going to become a nervous system form. So it's very, very interesting to see the sequence of, of how old that connection is between the face, between the jaw, and between the pelvis. Um, especially at the level of the gut. Very, very important uh, consideration here. It turns out embryologically that the gut tube lies in between the developing tube of the central nervous system and 
the tube of the heart. And it further turns out that genetic uh, cells, not cells, but genetic codes and uh, biochemical factors are coming from the gut tube inducing the growth of the nervous system in the heart in front of it. So it's, it's such an extremely important connection between the, the top of the gut tube, which is responsible in a large part for the development of the heart and the brain, and then the rest um, of the body and the, and the nervous system effect all the way down through the pelvic floor. Huge connection, huge importance in terms of that gut tube. How does the umbilical cord speak to this gut tube? Like what's that conversation going on at the navel? Uh, well, that's a big conversation, uh, as you can imagine. Before, and, and that's interesting. One, I, you might even be able to compare that to a psoas development. I'm just speculating out loud. But before you have an umbilicus, why do you have an umbilicus? Because you've got to have an umbilical cord. And what do you have an umbilical cord for? Because you need to have an umbilical vein and an umbilical artery that are delivering nutrition coming from the placenta and then removing waste products from the, the fetus and the embryo and going back to the placenta. So that's obviously the main reason there is a, is a source of nutrition that's coming in through the umbilicus. But before you, you even have that umbilicus, you have what is called a connective tissue stalk. In short, it's a connecting stalk. So very early on in the second week of development, that embryo is floating around in a fluid cavity, and it needs to get hooked up to the future placenta. It's not a definitive placenta yet. It's still very young. And in order to do that, it has to form a connective tissue stalk. How does it do that? It produces blood. Blood is the first organ that appears in the embryo long before a heart and a nervous system appear. The blood has a lot of connective tissue cells. It surrounds the embryo and allows it to stick right to that wall of the, what's called the chorionic cavity and the future placenta, and that forms a connective tissue stalk that then becomes the umbilicus, umbilical cord, that gets attached through to the umbilicus. So that's kind of backing into the history of that. Very important connective tissue element that connects us to the world, connects us to the mother, uh, connects us to uh, a huge source of nutrition and nurturing. So our bloodline. Let's talk about blood. Blood is a very unique organ in that it, it uh, forms first, and then it has to form canals in, in order to form tubes, and then it's got to wait for the heart to develop. And so the heart has to develop internally, and then once the um, heart develops, the tubes connect through, uh, and not necessarily just the umbilical vein and artery, but a whole network of, of canals and tubes. And it's beautiful because the intrinsic nature of blood flow is stillness. Doppler radar studies have shown that in these, even these tiny little capillary beds, in these tiny little arteries and veins in an embryo, that the inside of that flow is stillness. It's a void space. 
And what's one of the important discoveries in the last five years is the importance of stillness and silence and in the way it attracts nutrition. Blood is attracted to stillness. When the, when the neural tube needs to get a supply of blood and nutrition, the blood vessels coming off of the heart are attracted to the stillness that's anterior to the uh, neural tube. It's an amazing, amazing story. Blood fills the vacuum, and it always is attracted to stillness. And the stillness then becomes nurturing. So uh, it's a beautiful story. That story, I could stay on the phone here for a couple hours and tell you that one. I would like that. Um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, it takes me to the idea of the trough that Emily Conrad speaks of. Um, and for those of you who don't know who Emily Conrad is, she's a, she's a pioneer in the somatic movement world and for over 40 years has taught uh, the fluid system. And that's a very uh, innovative system. And when you're looking at fluid, one of the things that she speaks about, of course, is wave motion. And so what would actually be potentially silent in the fluid story wouldn't be a lack of movement, but it would be a very long trough, so to speak, in the wave where it would open up in any uh, direction, any capacity. So it would almost appear to be stillness. And yet, as an organism, we're always moving. So I don't know. Whatever you want to say about that stillness in relationship to fluid. Well, the the movement we're speaking about, uh, we can find three-dimensional movement in the body, and then we can find local fluid flows. And the global movement um, is primarily, you know, what would be defined as, as biodynamic and the just the way I help my students and myself find that movement is to begin with sensing the pulsation of the heart in conjunction with the movement of the respiratory diaphragm as, as one unified movement because the heart is attached to the diaphragm and, and also consequently is attached to the top of the psoas. So it's almost like... Um, the literal psoas has these two beacons of movement sitting on top of them. One of the things that happens in, in development is that the heart tube in the embryo coils up into and knots itself up into four chambers. So it has to go from a straight tube and tie itself into a knot in order to get to these four chambers. The inner surface of the knot, it turns out, all those cells that are squeezed become dynamically still. The term in embryology is called quiescence. And so it seems that the, the majority of the inside of the heart is built from initially this beautiful quiescence, not an inertness, let's say, in the cells, not a deadness, but rather very low metabolic activity that's called quiescence. So you could say that the heart, um, you can more than say it, the heart does develop around this stillness, this quiescence, and as I said earlier, it is attracted to stillness. So wherever there are pockets of fluid in the embryo uh, or surrounding any structure, 
the blood will go there and then build um, vessels to keep it going there and fill up the space. And consequently, then, we see that since the blood developed outside of our body initially, that we can tune into the space around our body as a fluid-filled space because of the water vapor that's being evaporated off of the body on a regular basis in fairly large quantities, the heat conduction that's coming off of the body, the radiation of infrared that's coming off of the body, all of which can be sensed. So I like to help students you know, sense that space of wholeness around them until they feel the whole room go into a stillness and then connect that fluid, continuum, holistic movement in the body with the movement of the heart to the stillness. And, and to be able to connect that level of movement to the stillness is very nurturing because that's the way it was originally developed. Yeah, so that takes us to, to the idea of field. And um, my understanding is some of the new studies in embryology are, you know, we think of this organism as a thing growing in this fluid, embryonic fluid of the mother, but really the fluid could be perceived as the biointelligence that is shaping the embryo. Do you want to say anything about what's that whole perception of field? Um, fields are interesting. Uh, I mean, there's a number of ways to look at that. I know uh, in, in the new physics, uh, there's a lot of discussion, especially around Sheldrake's work, Rupert Sheldrake and mm -hmm. uh, I forget what he calls those, morphogenic fields, the fields yeah. that are around us. And we know from the HeartMath Institute folks that the, the field of the heart um, as an electromagnetic field uh, radiates about 15 feet out in front of us. And when you study embryology, you study fields as well, but from a, a slightly different perspective. They're called metabolic fields. And that is that all structures of the human body derive out of um, clusters of cells that change their shape. That's how you get a structure. You just change the shape of the, the cell, and when you get enough change of shape, then that cluster begins to form a particular structure. And when you get into a particular cluster of cells in the human embryo that is going to form a structure, it's called a metabolic field and all of the metabolic fields are interconnected. So we're talking about the pre-structure of anything. Any form, any structure in the human body is going to be a fluid field with different shaped cells in it that's communicating within itself and then communicating to the fields around it and being shaped by the fields around it. So cartilage forms and starts to lengthen because it's a very strong metabolic field and it changes the shape of the cells around it and those long cylindrical type cells become muscle cells and the muscle cells form right along the edge of the cartilage and the bone going right with it. So it's, it's a beautiful thing. So we have fields within fields within fields and in terms of applying and teaching this understanding the fields that are inside of us and how they're interconnected as one whole, and then sensing the field around us, immediately around our body, and then 
those those bigger fields that are outside in in the room as well as outside the window in nature. So all these fields get interconnected. So I mean that's the way I explain it. But mm-hmm. well, you mentioned heart map, which I also talk about because that's where I first learned the word coherency and was introduced to the concept of coherency and and that the heart um, it, it is the heart that that helps us create coherency in all the nervous systems. And um, uh, I'd like you to go into the biodynamic perspective of the heart. I know that's a particular love and interest of yours. So tell us about the heart. Well, the the piece around the heart and embryological development and the coherence, um, I like to, to help students find their fluid nature first and to find the shape of their body, find the hole uh, via a simple body scan or the shape of their body from the bottom of their feet to the top of their head. And then I like to help my clients and my students and myself start to de-densify the musculoskeletal system and just to, to feel the micro-movement of the fluids and the natural movement of the biological water that's in our body, of which we are the majority of that. Once, once the students and, and the client gets a sense of that um, and the, the slow rhythm that's moving through it, I then like to direct attention to the heart because that's what develops next, the heart and the blood. And the simplest thing is just to bring uh, awareness consciously to the movement of the heart in the middle of one's chest. It's, it's very simple. It's very elegant. The heart math people say that that develops coherence, but what that means is it's been shown that just simply sensing the movement of your heart consciously lowers fear. It reduces overall fear in the neurological system. It downregulates the amygdala. It helps to upregulate and create resilience in the forward parts of the brain. In other words, just simply sensing your heart changes brain structure. This is incredible, and yet it's so simple. And so sensing the movement of the heart, and I like to add in the movement of the diaphragm because they, the heart and the diaphragm embryologically really develop as one common system in terms of the way they ended up, especially with being attached to one another. Originally, it was just a fluid flow through a canal, and it just happened that the bottom of the canal was going to be the the respiratory diaphragm. So it's very important then to get a a general sense of the movement of the heart and see if you can allow that movement to expand into a larger area so that you could actually maybe feel your whole trunk, your whole trunk and abdomen pulsing and feeling the respiratory diaphragm. I don't put a lot of attention on breathing anymore. I put more attention on the combination of the movement of the respiratory diaphragm in conjunction with the movement of the heart. And in doing so, it automatically generates a field of stillness around us in the room. I've seen it every time. Um, Every time I do this practice by myself or with a client, or with a room full of students, the amount of stillness that's generated is incredible. And we just rest in that stillness, let go of all of our attention, because we know that that's the nurturing space. That's the ground in which we developed. That's how we got nurtured in that growth and development. 
in the, in the stillness around us. So that's, that's the sequence of what I call embodied compassion. Um, and we work on that for quite some time. I just gave the cliff notes in several minutes, but it's, it's, uh, it's quite a process to really get familiar with that and to really let go of fear, to downregulate fear. It's a very, very difficult thing. We live in the age of fear. That's what I see. That's what I experience. Um, and we've got to help reduce the fear. The Dalai Lama says we need to give all human beings the gift of non-fright, the gift of non-fear. And one of the ways we do that is simply sensing the movement of the heart. Beautiful research. I, uh, I, do, I do the same thing in my workshops because it's, uh, the psoas is associated with fear and the fear response. Um, and it's part of the expression of that. And so I, I work with the heart in the same way and to open up the field. Um, and I agree, it's, it shifts everything. Tell me about how the heart in embryology develops and this idea that it kind of, um, I think it's intriguing that it goes into a knot. It's an interesting way of thinking about it. Like, uh, I find that, you know, as a structure, what, what have you discovered about the embryological expression of the heart? Well, uh, it's beautiful studying the heart. Um, when you study the human heart, um, there's a, a series of models because any embryologist that studies it has to develop a model in terms of what they're coming into relationship with because it's so unusual. But to form, to, just to give a, a, a ground, the heart um, initially starts off as a tube, um, a long tube, and what turns out that the parts of the tube are upside down initially. In other words, the ventricles are at the top and the atrium are at the bottom. So in development, the bottom of the tube has to get turned upside down. And so when I say it gets turned into a knot, it actually turns itself upside down. I mean, it grows upside down. It grows into a position so that the bottom of the tube gets on top. And I, for me, I, I make a joke in class, but who hasn't had their heart turned upside down at some point in their life at least 20 times um, by whatever means? And I think that we can begin to normalize our experience because the heart is designed normally to turn itself up to upside down and be completely compatible with that. That's completely normal. And the beauty of the heart, in addition, is that there's a new model that's being talked about in embryology now in terms of then what happens when the heart gets turned upside down. And the new model of heart development is called ballooning. It literally actually looks like a balloon filling up. And if there were a mouth blowing into a balloon, the mouth would be in back of the heart towards the spine in a structure called the dorsal pericardium. The pericardium is just the fascial sac around the heart, but early in development, uh, the heart is anchored to that. And so the heart is ballooning out, and the ballooning forms a, a very important and necessary dynamic in the heart in order to divide up into these chambers and, and have the, the space to do that. And it balloons out way in front of our body. If you could have put your hand on your chest right now and your sternum, you know, the heart's in back of that. But if you extended your hand all the way in front of your body, 
your heart as an embryo proportionally would touch the tips of your finger. That's how, how much of a ballooning happens. So, again, extending that into the psycho-spiritual domain, we could say that the heart is big enough to handle most anything, really. And its job is to balloon and handle and become as large as possible. The third mm-hmm. element that's just stunning around this is that when that inner looping happens and the turning upside down, those inner structures have difficulty getting a source of nutrition and cells from the outside. And so the very inner parts of the heart that are dynamically still are also going through a process of what's called transdifferentiation. The inside of the heart will transform one type of a cell into another cell in order to build itself. It's very rare to see that anywhere else in the human embryo, but it's, it's a huge function in the heart. What does that tell us psycho-spiritually? It tells us that the heart is built for transforming that which it comes into relationship with and can pretty much handle um, anything that comes its way. I think that's the great gift of Tonglin practice from the Tibetan Buddhist community. You know, the breathing in of pain and suffering from another person and transforming it into the heart and breathing back out health. That's what a heart does in embryonic development. It's normal. It's normal behavior. So those are the three main things that really impress me the most about the heart. That takes me to the, um, I, I don't work with the breath either because I feel like the breath is a very, um, uh, very ancient system. And um, I think that the interruption of breath is what you're experiencing. So trying to breathe, to force a different breath on top of a system that's already um, uh deregulated a system that's already expressing something um, so I work more with going into what uh, Emily Conrad and myself would call the back field in other words the back of the heart which is where where you also access a lot of support and nourishment and in working with this we I see breath find its own natural rhythm and I know you work with uh, a concept called primary respiration. And what I feel a lot of people are expressing is their birth experience. So I see a lot of um, what I would call startle or uh, the, the reaction of the system going into sympathetic. So it's almost like people have never exhaled fully. <laughs> Anyways, I, I, you know, they're all sitting, we're all sitting there going, ah! and that's where we live. So, yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. So I want to talk about the primary respiration or anything about breath in that regard to the embryo and how uh, I know it's, it's how the lungs and the diaphragm and any of that structures or, or the pulse that's in the fluid or whatever, whatever you want to say. <laughs> Wherever you want to go, you can take me. Uh, I want to give you my my grandmother's favorite recipe for <laughs> for pierogies. <laughs> oh, great! Sounds yum. This, uh, I just kidding. Well, I think um, the breathing component. You ask about primary respiration, so I'll just say a few words about primary respiration, and and that's kind of coded language with 
craniosacral community and with the osteopathic community. And it has a long history because originally the, the people that sense this rhythm in the body, they called it the tide, and some people call it the long tide, and many contemporary therapists call it primary respiration. So what is it? You know, what is it that we're talking about? Well, it, it's the perceptual experience of a movement in the body, and some people have experienced it as a movement that's also outside of the body as well. I have had that experience. So it's, it's the experience of a very slow movement, uh, particularly in the fluids of the body. And according to the osteopathic community, um, it was originally felt that this primary respiration was the healing force that was being worked with in the human body. And now it turns out that it's not that we are working with it. We are just observing its effects in the human body. So I might put my hands on someone and feel this very slow breathing in their fluids and in their whole body. Or I might put my hand on a bone and just feel primary respiration breathing through the fluid matrix of the bone. Or I might put my hand on an artery and just feel the, this primary respiration you know, breathing slowly through the veins and arteries of the body. So this is, again, particularly oriented to the cranial community, and it's felt that the primary respiration is a movement of wholeness because it's three-dimensional. It can be sensed originally as something or initially as something that's two-dimensional uh, in front of us, coming back and forth, but gradually there's a... There's a three-dimensional holistic sense of this movement expanding in all directions and contracting in all directions through our body. So I like to call it the movement of wholeness, and it just puts movement again into something that has a felt sense rather than a concept. So there's a lot of training in how to sense this because we live in a very fast, as you know, society, so I'm not saying anything new. We all... Um, have our own speed issues to deal with, and we all see that in, in many of our clients that they're dealing with speed issues. The thing that's practical, though, is when you talk about primary respiration, there is some literature that supports it. Some of the attachment and bonding literature uh, research has shown that the synchronization between a mother and her baby when they're in playtime and there's no stress that approximately once a minute they synchronize with each other and then they desynchronize and go back into um, a, a, an attention away from one another. So we see just visually that neurologically this primary respiration has to do with attention when we're relaxed. We can move our attention and that would be a normal way in which the nervous system likes to operate. So when I finish a session with a client, I put my hand on their back. We're looking out the window at my mango trees. I'm looking at a mango tree right now. It's full of blossoms. And I just ask the client to move their attention out to the mango trees. And I've got my hand on their back, and I can sense this movement. And when it shifts, I say, now I want you to move your attention back to your body and start sensing your heart and breathing again. So I gradually teach the clients how to move their attention at this tempo, and then I ask them for homework to just sit and look at nature 
because of the orientation uh, towards the horizon and towards nature and to be able to feel this more globally. I have taught mothers in my pediatric classes with their children. I've taught mothers within five minutes how to feel this in their kids. Five minutes. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And there's other research that supports um, primary respiration. Uh, there's, there's been sensors in the ocean that senses a one-minute movement coming from the surface of the ocean down to the floor of the ocean. So all of these uh, things and others indicate that there is this slow movement, this slow tempo. It can be perceived, and it has very, very good therapeutic value, uh, especially when working with it in craniosacral therapy. Tell me something about the embryological development of the diaphragm uh, and the lungs. How, when and how and who and what? Well, the diaphragm, uh, if you could imagine, you've got a primitive streak. So if you just imagine, you know, you've got the, you're kind of looking at the bottom of a shoe because that's the shape of the embryo. And in the middle of the shoe, you've got this primitive streak. So you want to superimpose what looks like a pen or a pencil on top of it coming from the bottom. Well, if you look at the top of the shoe, the top of the shoe is horseshoe-shaped. And that's uh, in, in embryology. Before there's um, a blood uh, vein, you have a fluid canal, a fluid-filled canal. So this hor- there is a big horseshoe-shaped canal sitting on top of the primitive street. And when those cells of the heart slough off of the primitive street, they go into this canal. And what do canals do? Well, it's got a fluid flow in it. And it takes those cells right to the top of the horseshoe, towards the top of that shoe. It turns out that the very bottom of that horseshoe, I mean the bottom edge of it, all of it's in our current neck. So you have to imagine that that horseshoe shape is in your neck. Your heart starts in the neck and your diaphragm starts in the neck because that's the bottom of the canal. And then in growth, what happens is the diaphragm actually gets pulled down into its position, thus pulling the heart down, forming a tube. So that's the initial relationship between the diaphragm Mm -hmm. starting in the neck and going down uh, to its uh, current location in the middle of the trunk. So it's a beautiful... Um, beautiful so are you saying, understanding. Are you saying that the actual diaphragm structure is one of the components that creates the heart tube, or at least yep. maybe elongates it? Uh, that's correct. Wow, that's an interesting image. Yeah, that's why I don't, I don't, I don't teach um, heart movement without diaphragm movement because that's the way it started. And uh, it's certainly a very sensible way. Research in Belgium has shown that when you do sense the heart and diaphragm together, you feel more of your body holistically. You feel more of your body three-dimensionally when you include both together in terms of a body image. It's a wonderful thing to be able to add in. And I do a lot of work around the neck and face because the heart as a balloon um, rests on the face. And it's the face that is actually giving off these, these genes and other molecules that are inducing the growth of the heart uh, anterior to it, as I said earlier, and posterior to the brain and back of it. 
So the face and the neck are exceedingly important pieces, as Stephen Porges will tell you. He's got he holds yes. the patent on the face. <laughs> <laughs> and the important and for those of you who yeah, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the polyvagal um, theory, which has to do with the vagus nerve as well. So the vagus nerve kind of enters into this conversation of diaphragms, so as kidneys, gut. I don't know if you want to say anything about all of that. I find the whole math story area really, really relevant to well, pelvic integrity I, and things like that. I think, you know, I, and I asked Stephen this um, when I was with him last May. We were both speaking together at a conference, and I said, you know, Stephen, the vagus nerve comes down, um, wraps itself around the, the esophagus and innervates parts of the heart, and then it comes down to the stomach and the gallbladder, the small intestine. I said, but you know, Stephen, this thing ends right in the large intestine, right by the splenic flexure before you get into the descending colon. And I said, what about and how does the uh, parasympathetic outflow of coming from the sacrum connect to it and what's that all about and he said he hadn't looked at that and hadn't researched that so I immediately went online and started looking at that and I, I found that if you're postulating there's a social nervous system in the face with the vagus nerve then there'd be um, a sexual nervous system in the pelvis with the parasympathetic outflow of the sacrum and it's somehow those two um, got to get connected I think I'll write him a letter and suggest he form a theory around that. So, well, I, I'd like to suggest that one of the theories is the psoas um, and its play between those two expressions. Because it, it, I, don't, I, I think that tissue, because I think of the psoas um, as an organ of perception, and, and it bridges, so to speak, a lot of these different systems. And that's one of the systems I think it's having a conversation with. And one of the things I work on a lot is expression, both the fetal, the curling that's natural to the body and protection, but also what I call warding off, startle, or surprise. It doesn't have to be something necessarily horrific. It can be the, the system opening up. And the psoas, and in the wave, that's the orgasmic response where the body goes into a full wave or undulation well I, I would completely agree play. with you yeah, yeah I think that's where the two get inner expressed is right in that same area you're talking about heart diaphragm kidneys so as well and if we continue on down the line and we we, we look at the pelvis uh, we're talking about sexuality and and the kidney forming part of the urinary bladder uh, all of that we find that very little is known about the embryological development of the pelvis. And why is that? It's because the human pelvis takes about 30 years to develop. Wow. Parts of, yeah, parts of the pelvis aren't finished until you're in your late 20s. Uh, you know, your heart's not really finished until you're about two years old. And just in terms of having four chambers, a lot of people think babies come out with a four-chambered heart. They come out with a three-chambered heart. And it takes about a year to two years um, for those upper chambers to, to form and close properly. But the 
the pelvis is the longest to develop. Uh, you know, we are perpetual embryos. You know, a lot of people think that, you know, you get to the end of the embryonic period and then you become a fetus. Well, that's not really so. I mean, we continue this embryonic journey, especially with the pelvis, into our late 20s. And so all of that, our sexuality, um, our diet and nutrition and our elimination patterns, all of it are so unformed and so constantly changing and fluctuating and growing and maturing at lots of different levels, socially, sexually, and otherwise. So, oh, that's fascinating. So I think, you know, you're, you're absolutely right that that SOAS is the bridge between that which is unformed in constant transition, you know, to that which is helping the brain um, and the heart mature in itself with the diaphragm above it. And so the, the reason I also those... talk about that is because the, the, the solar plexus, which is this, this, this area we're speaking of, from an energetic point of view, you know, we call it the, the will center or the, the center of self-actualization. And so that's what I refer to as integrity, because as, as the person manages as they've arrived on, on earth and they start to manage themselves, their conditioning and their experience gives them either the opportunity to, to really blossom or often they learn techniques to suppress their capacity to express themselves because it's not safe or because they're told that's a better way to go about. And so a lot of my work is about this self-expression that happens as so as starts uh, messaging who they really are and a person actually starts to um, blossom as who they are. And Beautiful. They learn, yeah, they learn not to um, inhibit what is actually their own capacity to continue to, I guess, embryologically develop. True. And, and we now know that, that the majority of, of, of challenges that people face with disorders and diseases are coming right out of their gut, which is, you know, resting right in front of that psoas. So we got to calm down the gut and, and get into our psoas. One of the um, one of the things I wanted to ask just quickly, uh, because we're almost coming to the end of this conversation, but, you know, you talk about stillness, so I'm going to kind of go full circle back to the beginning. And, you know, when we think of stillness and the fact that you're talking about how the blood is attracted to stillness, one of the thoughts I had was, oh, isn't that interesting? Because then you have to ask the question, what is the difference between stillness and stagnation? Stillness, um, as I said earlier, is, is not inert or, or it's not dead. So, and you would have to say maybe, you know, we could talk about it from a spectrum point of view, but I, I wouldn't even put stagnation on, on that spectrum. I think what we're talking about here um, is health, you know, and, and so the, the dynamic stillness that I'm talking about is, is directly associated with health, which is the pre-existing condition. And we know that in human systems, there's a polarity. Yes, we have inertia. Yes, we have dysfunction. Yes, we have all that stuff. And yet we also have the health. And so the type of stillness I'm referring to both embryonically is one in which the metabolic activity facilitates growth and development and does not degenerate it. So, right. 
So that's how I would differentiate it from stagnation. Stagnation is in this other camp, this other corner of, of disorders and dysfunction and especially complex inflammatory problems in the gut that is dramatically reducing the function of our immune system, you know, causing heart conditions and, and all sorts of things. The, the research found is just stunning. So. so my last question for you is um, one of my favorite topics, which is I think our organism, our being, has a great impulse of longing. And uh, I work with longing because, um, because I think as human beings, we're afraid to long. And yet, embryologically, would you not say the system longs to become, like there's a, there's a way that longing is part of that appearing? I would absolutely agree. Uh, and my dear friend, Sarah Jo Berman, who I've taught with, um, coined a beautiful term when we were talking about this, and she called it the urge to become. Mm-hmm. And we have our hands on people. We sense our own primary respiration. We sense the, the, our waves coming from the, the diaphragm, the pulsations coming from the heart. And when we, we put the sum of that together, there's a basic urge. There's a basic drive. You know, my, de- my degree at Naropa was very interesting because I worked clinically with patients who were di- diagnosed with psychosis. And even in psychosis, you could see the health. You could see the urge to overcome these disorders, that there's this constant urge or, as you say, longing. And it can be sensed in the fluids as a surging, um, as a streaming in some of the, the early somatic literature. And through primary respiration and stillness, all these representations of the urge to become and to become more whole. Constant, mm-hmm. constant work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael. This is just delicious. It's a good lunch oh. for me. It's noontime <laughs> for me, but it was just a delicious opportunity to hear uh, you speak and to be informed by your wisdom and your knowledge. Thank you. Liz, thank you very much. I really appreciate this opportunity. It was a Um, pleasure. We're we're right at 1 o'clock. I don't know if you have time to take any questions. I'm going to leave that to you. Um, If you do, great. If you don't, that's okay, because I I took us all the way to the end. I have some time. Uh, Should we put a time limit on it, five minutes or ten minutes? Yes, Yes, exactly. Uh, We'll just take a couple questions. And I want to tell everybody, um, you can – Find out more about Michael Shia's work at michaelsheateaching.com. That's his website. And I'm going to unmute people. We'll take one or two questions. If someone would like to ask a question, feel free. And if not, try to be quiet because I'm unmuting you. We'll hear your background noise. So, do I have any questions if you would like to ask Michael? Anyone want to speak up? Just say your name and ask a question. Yes, people are being quiet. I left him breathless. 
You this can. left me restless. <laughs> oh, we're all in stillness. Yeah, well, we said a lot. We said a lot. We did? Enough. We did. Yeah. Um, I, I, do, I have a question. Go ahead. Um, on your website, you have a number of um, meditations on different parts of uh, the embryology, and I'm wondering if there's, you know, a first two, three, or four that you might recommend in terms of an order if one was going to explore these. Well, uh, I have to be really honest with you. Um, I'm not sure the order that's presented on the website. Um, can you refer me, or do you have a sense of uh, are they graded? I, I just basically haven't looked at it in a couple of months. No, I, don't I know. mean. The, no, I'm not really sure. Sh- I, I mean, I couldn't get a sense. I, I couldn't get a sense. I would have to look back at it and see if they were in alphabetical order or something. But just as you think about what what you've done, and you know, if you if you want to recommend a few places to start for those of us who who are maybe not hands-on body workers but would like to explore this in in our own bodies. Well, uh, thank you. And I think in terms of meditations, I try to keep them all um, fairly simple and straightforward. So, I mean, just generically, I would say um, I don't have a preference of of where you would start or which ones to do. There's not really, they're not differentiated into basic or advanced at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, The heart's a good place to begin, to sense the heart and to sense the the heart uh, and breath. Okay, I'd be thanks. A suggestion of places to be here. Okay, yeah, that's a good thing. That's going to shift the whole nervous system. And that opens your field up. It opens your awareness up to sensing other aspects of yourself. And then you could start some of the other suggestions Michael has. Any other questions? Take one more. Go ahead. Don't be shy. (laughs) (laughs) Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Um, This is Sheila in Cleveland, Michael. Um, I'm asking about the uh, global background, cosmic global background uh, radiation field in Olaf Corpion's work. Would that be, would you consider that uh, comparable to the um, tides, to the primal respiration? Well, That's a big um, I, I wish I could answer that. Um, I don't, uh, and I'm not familiar with his work at all. Um, mm. So I wouldn't know how to answer that. I believe, though, that I've been told that he does equate primary respiration and, and does form a relationship with that um, mm-hmm. background radiation, um, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. But mm-hmm. more specifically than that, I, I'm really, uh, I really can't answer that. It's interesting you say that because this morning I was reading an article about black energy or dark energy and dark matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's new research on that, and for some reason I've always been attracted to that. And one of the the findings, and again, in the newspaper this morning, it was talking about that, that our universe and the entire universe is 
expanding and it, mm-hmm. and it's speeding up. And it's interesting um, that that would be called in cranial work the expansion tide because that is palpable. There are moments, you know, when I have my hands on someone that mm-hmm. I can actually feel a very subtle expansion that just is, is not stopping at all. And I think that that is equated, you know, with that dark matter and dark energy expansion mm-hmm. of the universe. So mm-hmm. I know there's a relationship um, and I can feel something in the body um, and and perhaps it's that's the way it is and perhaps I'm having an interesting fantasy. I don't know. <laughs> he does have a thank nice... You. Uh, thank, uh, thank you for your question. I want to open okay. it up to someone okay. else. Thank you. Uh-huh. So what, one last question if there's anyone who'd also like to ask a question. Otherwise, we'll stop there. Oh, this, this is Britta, and I was kind of curious about the Dalai Lama's um, um, quote that you said, something about uh, offering the world the gift of non-fright. And right. Could you tell me where I could read more about that or, or where you found him? I, it, sound, it sounds, um, I don't know, kind of wonderful, and I, I kind of wanted to further like read some more about that or something. Well... I'm just trying to think where you might find that. Um, I, I read a lot of his um, writing, and then I also attend a lot of his seminars internationally. And then I, I, I'm also on an editorial team for uh, what's called BurzenArchives.com. And this is an archive of Buddhist literature that would also include um, literature and uh, classes by the Dalai Lama. So my recommendation, uh, since I don't have that kind of photographic memory of, of where I heard that, I know I read it in, a, in a, one of the prayers that he had written. And, and I know it was in association with the last initiation I went to on the Kala Chakra Tantra. So somewhere in the Kala Chakra uh, literature and that, that style of Vajrayana Buddhism, he talks about the necessity of giving uh, people the gift of non-fright. But more specifically, um, I work for um, part-time for Alexander Burzin, and he it's the biggest website and repository of, of literature of that kind. And you might um, find something like that on his website, especially if it's by the Dalai Lama. Uh-huh. So, And anything that the Dalai Lama has written on compassion uh, would also um, specifically perhaps allude to that, but elaborate and comment on that necessity. So I wish I could give you the precise reference because I love being able to do that, but I can't. Um, oh, no, thank you. I, I just, it, it strikes me as like a, a, a kind of a totally different way to go about building world peace. And, and I, I kind of latched onto it when you mentioned it and I just, I, I'll, I'll explore further. Thank you. Thank You're you very for your welcome. question. So I'm going to stop there, Michael, and thank you so much for joining us again. And for those of you who want to share this, this uh, lecture, it'll become a podcast, and it'll be free and available for anyone to just listen to on my website. It takes a, a little bit of time. Um, at my, web, my webmaster uh, has a six-month-old baby, and he's, he's busy uh, holding that baby. Um, so, um, but it'll be up soon. And thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Liz. Thank you.
All right. Bye-bye.